The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning, Shades. The scripture reading for today is Matthew um, 5, 38 through 42. So I'll give you a minute to turn there. Matthew five thirty eight through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and make your tunic and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I do invite you to open to Matthew chapter 5 if you have not done so. Um, in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, Peter Lightheart writes that verses 38 to 42 are verses that we're looking at this morning. He writes, uh, these verses, more than any other in the Sermon on the Mount, have been the source of confusion and misinterpretation. Can I just tell you as a pastor, reading something like that on Monday morning just blesses your heart. Oh goody, I get to try to teach on that. But it's true. It's true. These verses that we're looking at this morning, they contain some of the most well-known phrases in all of the Sermon on the Mount. Turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. And yet simultaneously, these are some of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted words of Jesus. I think that's the case because I, I think we tend to interpret these words like Amelia Bedelia. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? That's right. All right, so for those of you that aren't so blessed, Amelia Bedelia is a series of books that I loved as a kid. They're about, I don't know what she is. She may be, she's like a nanny or a maid or something like that. But they're about this character, Amelia Bedelia, who doesn't understand figures of speech. Like, she takes everything extremely, literally, I actually visited the Hoover Library, saw our very own Annabeth Reese this week, so I could relive this part of my childhood. And in one of the books that I got a hold of, uh, for instance, to, to show you how she takes things so woodenly and literally, uh, Amelia gets involved in a home remodeling project. And uh, she's told at one point to go and to sand the back deck, you know, like a wooden deck. And so she naturally goes and gets buckets of sand out of the kid's sandbox and pours it all over the deck. She's sanding the deck. Ha ha. Then she goes in and she glues a bunch of marbles all over the kitchen top like counter because her boss had said that she wanted marble countertops. Ha ha. They're not my jokes, people, okay? And apparently my sense of humor has grown a little bit over the years because as a child, I thought this was the funniest thing I'd ever seen in my life. But you get the picture. Amelia's problem is that she misunderstands what kind of language she's hearing. And so she misinterprets it. I think that's what causes so much confusion about much of the Sermon on the Mount, especially the verses that are in front of us today. I think we misunderstand what kind of language we are hearing, and so we misinterpret it. What, what kind of language is this, or what kind of literature is this? 
It's wisdom literature. We talked about that several times. If you want to hear the argument for that, you've got to go all the way back to the beginning of the series where I actually argue that it's eschatological wisdom literature. That's a fun party word. But you can go back and hear exactly why I think it's wisdom literature. And this is how the, the Sermon on the Mount, we've talked about the fact this is how it presents itself to us. Wisdom literature lays out general principles for wise living. Generally, here's how you are to be in the world in order to live and move in God's way, in the way that he has designed life to be lived. But the problem is we don't hear the Sermon on the Mount this way. We tend instead to hear the Sermon on the Mount as law. Especially in this section of chapter 5. Because in this section of chapter 5, Jesus has been constantly quoting the Old Testament law to us. He does that again in our first verse of our passage today. Look at it, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is Jesus' fifth time. Fifth time in chapter 5 of Matthew that he is quoting or paraphrasing the Old Testament law. He uses the same introductory phrase every time to do this. You have heard that it was said. Then he goes on to say, but I say to you. He does that again right here in verse 38. Look at it again. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. On its face, to many people, what it sounds like is it sounds like Jesus is quoting the Old Testament law and then replacing it. Going, ah, you heard this, let me get rid of that. Abolish that and replace it with a new law. The Jesus law. So you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Yep, abolish that, let's replace it. What's the Jesus law right here? Do not resist the one who is evil. And when Christians hear that, as a new law, it leads to some pretty extreme conclusions. So uh, just to give you a couple of for instances, there are many people who conclude from this teaching of Jesus that he is demanding total and complete pacifism from his followers. Now I think that people can make good biblical arguments for pacifism. I don't end up buying into them, but I don't think that you can argue it at all from this text. People will say, Jesus is saying, this is the new law. Do not resist the one who is evil, period, ever. Some will even say what that means for Christians is they they can't even legitimately engage in self-defense. Or they can't work in any occupation that would ever involve resisting an evil person. So being a police officer is out. Serving in the military, out. These are conclusions that people draw from this text. But but here's the deal. I think, I think that all of that is hearing Jesus' teaching like Amelia Bedelia. We're misunderstanding the kind of language that we're hearing, and thus we are misinterpreting what it is that Jesus is saying. We're hearing it as law. So we interpret it like law. Overly, literalistically, rigidly, woodenly. And I think if we do that, especially if we do it with the whole passage, 
then we end up having some absurd Amelia Bedelia type results. Just look at verse 40. Let's try. Let's try and be woodenly literalistic with verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, now in first century Israel, your tunic is like your basic set of clothes. Shirt and pants is your basic tunic that's worn next to the skin. All right? So if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Your cloak is your outer garment. It's like like your heavy coat that you use for, for covering. In fact, most people actually doubled as a blanket that they used at night. If we hear this verse with Amelia Bedelia ears, then Jesus is instructing his followers to end up naked every time somebody sues them for their tunic. Give them your coat as well. Embrace the birthday suit. I don't think this is what Jesus means. So what does he mean? Like before we all breathe a sigh of relief, from talking about what Jesus' words don't mean. That's usually our favorite thing to do. Let's talk about what his words don't mean so I can just keep on living life exactly how I'm doing it and how I want to. Thank you. Before we breathe that sigh of relief, we need to see what his words do mean and that his words are even more demanding than we have dared yet to think. I think that we will see Clearly, what his words actually mean when we hear them for what they are. Not law, but wisdom. Wisdom that aims to transform our hearts to reflect the righteousness of Christ. To live in the way that Jesus lived. To live, this is what wisdom does. It calls you to a way of life. So, let's back up, begin again. In verse 38, and hear this anew. Look at it with me. Verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is a very infamous saying and is known as the lex talionis. Remember that because I'm going to say it all throughout this sermon because it's a shorthand way of referring to this law. It's just Latin and it means the law of retaliation. The Lex, well, Jonathan, why not just call it the law of retaliation? Because Lex Talionis is more fun to say. All right? So, and, and you can throw that one around at your party and sound smart or whatever. Anyway, all right. So, this infamous saying is known as the Lex Talionis. You can find it in multiple places in the Old Testament law. You can find it in Exodus 21. You can find it in Leviticus 24. You can find it in Deuteronomy 19. You can find it outside of the Bible in places like the Code of Hammurabi. This, this was a very common amongst civil societies in the ancient Near East. This was a common law that would be kept on the books. And to our ears, it doesn't sound very civil. It sounds pretty harsh. But all scholars that I can find are in agreement, anytime you can find something that all scholars agree on, that's it's like a miracle. All scholars are in agreement that this law is actually aimed at promoting justice and preventing injustice. Primarily, it's aimed at preventing two injustices. First, it's aimed to prevent excessive penalties. To prevent excessive penalties. In other words, the entire idea behind an eye for an eye is the punishment should fit the crime. You shouldn't go overboard here. It needs to be a just result rendered. 
So it's to prevent the injustice of excessive penalties. Second, the law is aimed to prevent the injustice of personal revenge. Where I just, you know, take it upon myself to get back at whoever has wronged me, which typically just leads to escalating violence and blood feuds. At least it does amongst my children. My children, normally by the time a situation reaches me, we have reached the level of blood feud, and I have to like go all the way back and sift to the beginning to realize this was all about the fact that somebody took somebody's Legos. It just escalated. You took my thing, all right, I'm going to return it in this way, and I'm going to return it in that way, and they're going to return it in that way, and it just escalates and it builds. This law was designed to prevent that. The Lex Talionis made sure that such legal matters would be handled by the proper authorities and that disproportionate punishments would not be used. The law was aimed at promoting justice and preventing injustice. Jesus right here doesn't reject that. He doesn't replace that. He's not abolishing the law. Is that not what he told us all the way back up in Matthew 5 and verse 17? I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to bring it to its ultimate goal. He's not abolishing that law. He affirms it, and then he fulfills it by aiming it at our hearts. That's what he's done over and over again all throughout Matthew chapter 5. That's what he does in verse 39. Look at it. He says, but I say to you, or I've been telling you throughout this series, a better translation there would be, and, and I say to you. In other words, I said this in the Old Testament. This is my word. I affirm it. And let me aim it at your heart. And I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, stay with me. All right, we've got a lot to dig through. There are two issues that we've got to talk through if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying right here. Do not resist the one who is evil. There's a context issue and there's a translation issue. Let's take them one at a time. First, the context issue. We've got to remember the larger context of Jesus' words. That controls how we hear what he's saying. The larger context of Jesus' words is the entire Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember, as we've gone throughout the sermon, we have seen over and over again that the entire sermon is ultimately about the righteousness of a transformed heart, which Jesus says is greater than the righteousness that the people have been taught by the scribes and the Pharisees. Their scribes and their Pharisees had taught a righteousness that was merely external. Scribes and the Pharisees, they are only concerned about external appearances, how they're perceived by other people. Out of, out of love for themselves and for their own glory, being praised by others, out of love for themselves and their own glory, they just want to be looked at as righteous on the outside. But the greater righteousness that Jesus is concerned about begins on the inside. It flows out of a heart that's been transformed to love not self and my own glory, but to love God and His glory. Jesus says real righteousness is when your external actions flow out of internal affections. That's the righteousness of a transformed heart. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about unpacking. What does that look like? What does it look like practically to live out of affections for God instead of just putting on an external righteous show? And in chapter 5, Jesus starts 
by showing us what this real righteousness, the righteousness of a transformed heart, he shows us what it looks like in relation to the word of God. In relation to the word of God. In, in other words, what does it look like when I read the word of God to not just merely conform to it externally so that I look righteous? What does it mean for that word to actually transform my heart so that I live in line with it? Not of love for self and being praised by others, but out of love for God. This is what Jesus is giving us examples of. Six of them in total. So far in Matthew 5, we've walked through four of Jesus' examples. In these examples, he shows us how the Pharisees twist the word of God to make themselves look righteous externally, all the while internally being filled with unrighteousness. Is this not what we've seen over and over again? I mean, think about the very first example. The Pharisees will point to the law about murder. See, we haven't murdered all the while using that to hide the fact that their hearts are filled with anger and hatred. They are filled with unrighteousness while externally wanting to be perceived as righteousness, as righteous. This is what Jesus does with every single example. Second example, remember the Pharisees try and say, oh, look, we don't commit adultery, but Jesus exposes their hearts are filled with unrighteous lust. The third example, the Pharisees twist what the Old Testament says about divorce to be like, see, look, we're keeping the law all the while Jesus says what they're actually doing is abusing and abandoning their wives for their adulterous desires. We call that sin laundering. That's what they're doing. Or if you remember last week, Brad showed us how they twisted God's word about oaths to try and come up with a system to make their dishonesty look like it was in line with the very word of God. Brad pointed out they're looking for loopholes. Again and again and again and again, example after example, Jesus has been showing us how the Pharisees twist the word of God so that they look righteous externally, all the while being filled with unrighteousness internally. And right here in Matthew 5.38, Jesus gives us example number five. That's what's going on. That's why we've got to remember the context that controls how we read Jesus' words right here. In context, we see what the Pharisees and scribes are doing is they are taking the lex talionis and they are twisting it to justify personal vengeance. The very thing that law was created to prevent. Apparently, they're taking it and they're going, well, you see, the law says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So when you harm me, I get to harm you back. And I am still righteously living in line with the law. Do you see it? Do you see how they're twisting the word of God to pursue their own evil desires of revenge and retaliation? I... I believe, ultimately I believe that this is what they were doing because this is what Jesus corrects in verse 39. Look at it again. And I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So in all the examples that we've seen in Matthew chapter 5 so far, I just walked us back through them a second ago. In all of the examples... Jesus does the exact same thing. He quotes or paraphrases the Old Testament law that the scribes and the Pharisees are twisting for their own glory. 
And then with his next statement, he reveals how they are twisting it by turning it back towards God and his glory. Quotes the law about murder, reveals how they're twisting it to justify their anger. Quotes the law about adultery, reveals how they're twisting it to justify their lust. That's what he's done every time, and that's what he's doing right here. His words in verse 39 reveal how the scribes and the Pharisees are twisting the lex talionis for their own glory. And to see that clearly, we've got to talk about the second issue. Remember I told you there were two. Context issue, now we've got to talk about the second one, a translation issue translation issue without diving into all of the complexities of the greek which i know that you are all interested in and wish we had all the time in the world to go through this morning if you want to know later seriously i would love to geek out with you let's sit down let's talk about it but without diving into all the complexities of the greek there are basically three ways three primary ways you could translate jesus's words in verse 39 into english all right the first and simplest translation would be, do not resist evil. I think that this is pretty easily false on its face. I mean, Jesus would say, yeah, sin, don't resist it. Satan, don't resist him. Just Jesus' entire incarnation was a resistance against evil. And we are called to resist evil. Nobody translates it this way. All right, done with that one second way you could translate it is the way it's translated for us right here do not resist the one who is evil all right that could mean don't resist satan he's called the evil one we've already said that's false on its face james 4 and verse 7 tells us specifically resist the devil and he will flee from you or it could simply mean don't resist an evil person that's how the esv translates it it's how a lot of versions translate it but i don't think that makes the best sense of what jesus is saying either because there is a third translation option that i not only think makes the most sense of what jesus is saying but i believe is actually affirmed by other new testament authors in other places so what is this third option the third option is do not resist by means of do not resist by means of evil. In other words, don't resist evil with evil. Or maybe you've heard it phrased this way. Don't repay evil for evil. That should sound familiar to you. And it should sound familiar because that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 17. Don't repay evil for evil. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. In both of those places, Paul and Peter both are reflecting, very clearly reflecting on Jesus' words from right here in Matthew chapter 5. And so I think that we very clearly see how they understand Jesus' words. When he says, do not resist evil, he means do not resist by evil means. Don't return evil for evil. That is the very way that the Pharisees were twisting God's word for their own glory. They twisted the lex talionis, which was designed to prevent personal revenge, to justify the pursuit of personal venge, to justify resisting evil with evil, repaying evil for evil, and supposedly 
they are righteous and following God's word in doing so. Right here, Jesus looks at that and says, no. Do not resist by means of evil. Don't take personal revenge. Don't seek vigil anti-justice. Basically, Jesus says, don't be Batman. Okay, so I don't know how many uh, comic book fans we have out there. I bet most of you are at least somewhat familiar with Batman. I love Batman. Even though I'm a Marvel guy, I make an exception for the Dark Knight. All right, I do love some Batman. I want to see the new movie. If you've seen it, no spoilers, please. But Batman, if we're going to be honest, is kind of like these Pharisees. In the name of justice, he becomes a vigilante and meets out his own personal revenge on every single crook he encounters. Jesus says to the Pharisees, that's not what the Lex Talionis is about. Quite the opposite. It was meant to prevent personal revenge. Jesus affirms that. But he doesn't stop there. He then takes aim at our hearts to transform them. This is what he has done every step of the way in Matthew 5 with every single example. Not just corrected the Pharisees, but go on to talk about how the word should be aimed at our heart ultimately to transform it. He's not just going to tell the Pharisees no personal revenge. He's actually going to go further to show how the word of God should be transforming their heart to have the exact opposite desires. He, He does that right here. How? How does he do it? How does he use this word so that it actually turns and transforms our hearts? We see how in verses 39 to 42. Look at it with me. Verses 39 to 42, Jesus gives us new heart-shaping habits. New heart-shaping habits. He he takes, watch, watch what he does right here. He takes the very word they were twisting, the lex talionis, And he's going to use that principle. He's going to turn it on its head. He's going to use it to turn our hearts toward love of God and his glory. To to turn, to transform, to bring about the righteousness of a transformed heart. Look at it with me. In verse 39, we see the first and most famous new heart-shaping habit that Jesus gives us. And I say to you, do not resist by means of evil, Don't resist evil with evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. In uh, in first century Jewish culture, a slap on the cheek was a very serious insult. And the fact that Jesus specifies the right cheek here probably means what's envisioned is a backhanded slap. If if I'm right-handed and I'm going to slap you on the right cheek, I've got to do it backhanded which was even more insulting in this cultural context because a backhanded slap was reserved for the quote-unquote lowest in society. It's a way of insulting someone's social status. The point of telling you all of that is that Jesus right here is talking about a situation that involves insult and shame. He is not talking about what to do when you're robbed. He is not giving self-defense advice. All right? He's not talking about what a spouse should do who's being abused. Just turn the other cheek. 
take it. I've heard this verse used that way. He's, he's not doing that, nor is he trying to lay out a foreign policy for how nations should respond when they are invaded. He's not saying, all right, Ukraine, turn the other cheek. But all of that is to try and use Jesus' words, try and turn them into a new law instead of hearing them for what they are. Wisdom that is aimed at transforming the instincts of our heart from hate to love. The scribes and the Pharisees, they had an, a heart instinct of hate. You insult me, I insult you back. That's, that's the knee-jerk reaction of my, my heart. You slap me, you dishonor me, you shame me, I slap back. Not only do I slap back, but I'm going to twist the word of God to claim that I have the right to such revenge. But Jesus untwists the word and transforms our hearts by turning the lex talionis on its head. He's saying to the Pharisees, okay, Pharisees, you want to apply the lex talionis personally right here? Here's what it looks like to do that righteously, not out of an unrighteous heart of evil revenge, but out of a righteous heart transformed by love. Jesus says, here's what it looks like. When you're slapped, insulted, instead of slapping back, bear the second slap. You... You take the punishment the other person deserves for them out of love. Somebody takes your tunic, don't apply the lex talionis of, ah, let me get their tunic back in revenge or take something even greater from them. He says, you give the second garment. Somebody forces you to go to a mile, you don't look to get that mile back. No, you do that second mile for them the penalty that they deserve bear it for them that should sound oddly familiar that should sound like the gospel does it not did not jesus bear the penalty that i deserve like if it's if it's an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth a life for a life then he did, did he not give his life when it should have been mine? When we experience such gospel love, it transforms our hearts to reflect it. Our heart's instinct is transformed from hate and self-preservation to selfless, self-giving love. Do, do you see what Jesus is saying right here in Matthew 5.39? He is saying that the heart instincts of his people in his kingdom is not to overcome evil with evil, but to overcome evil with good. That's Romans 12.21. He's saying the instinct of his people is not to twist the word for their own glory. No, it is to be turned by the word, transformed by the word toward glorifying God and the gospel of his love. 
the instincts of his people look a lot less like Batman and a lot more like Jesus. They've, they've been turned, transformed by the word to show the world what the love of Jesus looks like. Shades, is this the instinct of our heart? When you get slapped by the world, like when you get insulted on Twitter, what's the heart reflex? Tweet the perfect comeback. Are you willing to bear the second tweet? When someone lies about you, do you lie in return? Someone degrades the reputation of Shades Valley in the community. Do we turn around and degrade their reputation in return? Do, do we make sure that every insult is returned blow for blow and we feel justified in doing so because word of God says eye for an eye. That's twisting the word to my own evil purposes instead of being turned by the word towards its gospel purposes. Which go radically far beyond merely not seeking revenge. That's what we see when we keep reading Jesus' words. Just, just look at the next example he gives in verse 40, these new heart-shaping habits. He says, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, again, it's the basic garment worn next to the skin. He says, then let him have your cloak as well. That's that outer garment. And here's the, here's the crazy thing, Shades. The Old Testament law actually insists, you can go back, you can read this in Exodus 22 and verse 25. The Old Testament law actually insists that the outer garment, the cloak, it's a basic human right like within their cultural context. Because, like I told you, for many people, it doubled as a blanket that they slept with. Like even if you were going to take the coat as a pledge, you had to give it back to them at night because it was a basic human right. So the law prohibited ever permanently taking someone's cloak. So do you see what Jesus' hyperbolic words are saying right here? He's not insisting that his disciples become naked every time somebody sues them. He's making the point that his people's instinct is not to insist on their rights. Take my tunic. Okay, you can do that justly, but not my I'm going to insist on my right. This, this goes beyond not merely seeking revenge. To, to not prioritizing my legitimate rights over loving those who've wronged me. The people of God, their priority over their rights is loving that one. Showing them gospel grace and gospel. That's, that's my priority. That's the instinct of a heart that has been transformed by the gospel. We see that with even greater clarity in the heart-shaping habit of verse 41. Look at it. Jesus says, And anyone who forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. In the first century... Israel was under Roman occupation. And what's pretty clearly agreed upon in view right here was the right that a Roman soldier had to force any general citizen to carry their stuff. Whatever stuff they had, you can carry There's a famous example of this in Scripture. You can find it in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. Do you remember it? Roman soldiers force a man named Simon of Cyrene to carry what? Carry the cross. Carry Jesus' cross. For, for Jews... 
this was incredibly, it was, it was adding insult to injury. We're already occupied. But Jesus says, not to see this as insulting, but as an opportunity for serving. See, Roman soldiers, they could force somebody to do this, but only for a certain amount of distance, only about a mile, Roman mile, about a thousand paces. Jesus says, when this happens to you, volunteer to go the second mile. Now, if we're going to Amelia Bedelia this thing, and hear this overly literalistically as a new law, then I'm going to keep doing the Pharisee thing of having a heart that's still full of rage and desiring revenge. All I'm going to do is I'm going to carry whatever that is, a thousand more paces, and drop it on the ground. Say, that's as far as Jesus told me to carry it. It's not what's going on right here. Jesus' words are aimed at transforming the heart into being a certain way in the world, a way that reflects His own heart. His examples that He's unfolding right here, they have a progression. Do you, do you see the progression? He's, he's saying with, with the slap, with, with the cloak, with the carrying of the stuff, He's saying not merely don't seek revenge. He's also saying don't insist on your rights that you legitimately have. And He's saying instead seek to serve. You see the progression. Seek to love. In other words, don't be twisted in on yourself and your own glory. Be, be turned outwards towards others to point them to the glorious self-sacrificial love of God in the gospel. I think that Jesus' final example in verse 42 confirms that that's exactly what he's pointing us to. Look at it. Verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. There's no insult envisioned here. There's no violation of your rights. No oppression. This is a summary statement. Jesus is summarizing what he's saying with a simple, positive statement of what the instincts of a transformed heart should be. Namely, one ready to lovingly give itself away. Give. Give to the one who begs. Don't refuse the one who would borrow. And immediately we want to object. We want to say, really, Jesus? You really want us to be that way? I can think of like a hundred different situations where it's actually harmful to give to someone who is begging. And Jesus says, stop it, Amelia Bedelia. Of course Jesus knows that there are exceptions to what he's saying. He's not laying down a new law. He's laying out wisdom, general principles for the way his people are to reflect the gospel in the world. Namely, by having a heart that's not twisted in on itself, but turned outward towards the world in love. A heart whose instincts aren't revenge, but to willingly suffer wrong. A heart that sacrifices, doesn't insist on its own rights, it sacrifices its own rights. 
A heart that serves those who oppose them and and gives its life away to reflect the love of God in the Gospel. Is this not what Christ Himself has done in the Gospel? Were not His cheeks slapped? Just read Matthew 26 and verse 67. Yet He seeks not revenge. He bore even more blows on our behalf from all who opposed Him. Even you and me. He turned the other cheek. Read Matthew 27. In Matthew 27, his tunic was quite literally taken and he gave up his cloak as well. They gambled for it and he literally went naked when he had every right to call down 10,000 angels to his defense. He gave up his rights so that we might be made righteous. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 50, he carried... What we should have carried. He carried your sin and my sin. And not just for that first mile of death that it deserved, taking it down into the grave. No, in Matthew 28, he went that second mile, coming back out and defeating sin and death through resurrection. And now, to all who ask, who beg, he gives freely eternal life. He refuses no one, not you, not me. And when you receive such love, you are transformed to reflect it. It becomes your heart reflex, not perfectly. None of us do this perfectly, but truly. This is the desire of my heart. I want to reflect the love of Christ This I want to be the reflex of my heart. Shades, is it ours? Is it mine? Is it yours? We can know. We can know if this is our heart reflex simply by looking at what we do with this word. Do we, we, like the scribes and Pharisees, twist this word? Constantly trying to maneuver it to justify my actions, to do some sin laundering, some loophole finding like we've talked about? Do I I twist this word to follow the self-centered desires of my heart? Like revenge. Or like insisting on my own rights. Or getting out of serving. Here's a test for all of us this morning with how we've interacted with this word. Has the only thing, ask yourself this question, ask myself this question, has the only thing I've been interested in this morning is what this text doesn't mean? What it's not calling me to? Jonathan said I don't have to take this text literally. Done listening. Just to be clear, that's not what I said. All right? I said that we are not to read this text literalistically, overly, woodenly, as if it's law, but we need to take it literally as the wisdom literature that it is that won't let us twist it to be all about ourselves and our own glory. No, it turns us, quite literally, turns us to be about Jesus and his glory. Shades. Do we want to know if our hearts are being transformed to reflect the righteousness of Christ and the love of the gospel? All we have to do is ask, am I twisting this word to make it all about me? 
I only find useful the parts that I think are about me. Are we twisting this word to make it all about me? Or is this word turning me to be all about Christ? Twisting or turning? Which is the instinct? The reflex of our heart. The righteousness of a transformed heart has the reflex of being turned by the word more and more towards Christ. That's what it wants. It's what I desire, no matter how painful that is. My prayer, may the Holy Spirit use the word that we have seen this morning to turn us right now more towards Jesus.